Responding to non-fatal strangulation, what you cannot see. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands from where this podcast is being recorded and extend our respect to Elders past, present and emerging. We welcome and thank any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Welcome to this RACGP podcast. We will be talking about the GP's role in identifying and responding to non-fatal strangulation. My name is Jane Brabban. I'm a general practitioner in Orange, Wiradjuri country in New South Wales. I also work as a forensic examiner for the on-call sexual assault service, a service which provides acute medical, forensic and psychosocial care to victims presenting following sexual assault. And I'm joined by I'm joined by my two esteemed colleagues, Dr. Ellie Friedman and Dr. Anusha Victoire. Ellie, Anusha, please introduce yourselves. Hi, my name's Ellie Friedman. I work as a medical forensic examiner at Northern Sydney Sexual Assault Service, and I also work in a statewide education and policy capacity at New South Wales Education Centre Against Violence, or ECAV, and also in an acting role at New South Wales Ministry of Health, PARVAN branch, or Prevention and Response to Violence, Abuse and Neglect. Hi, my name's Anusha and um, I'm a GP and um, I also work as a medical forensic examiner at the um, Newcastle Sexual Assault Service and I'm a medical lead for the Hunter New Zealand various sexual assault services for adult and adolescent patients. I have a particular interest in non-fatal strangulation and have um, published on this um, and I'm also currently doing a PhD um, on injury and sexual assault, including strangulation. Um, Anusha's excellent article in, from the Australian Journal of General Practitioners is available in our show notes. So Ellie, why are we talking about strangulation? Well, I think strangulation is a an experience that we're beginning, or uh, an injury, an act of violence, that we're beginning to realise is extremely common. And it's particularly high instance in people who experience domestic and sexual violence. So it's something that we didn't used to really, wasn't really on our radar, but emergingly, when we look at people who are experiencing domestic and sexual violence and we ask them about a history of strangulation, it seems to be a very common theme. But I guess we're particularly concerned about it because we know that it's an indicator of risk. So not only, obviously, is strangulation an extremely dangerous event medically, we know that strangulation can and often does lead to death, but we also know that it's an indicator of a high risk situation. So someone who has experienced strangulation as part of a domestic violence situation is more likely to have serious injury or death within that relationship. And I think that's been recognised by emerging medical research, by emerging medical guidelines, and of course by legislative changes where um, in New South Wales and in other jurisdictions, strangulation is now recognised as a harm in itself. So strangulation, you can be prosecuted for strangling someone rather than strangling being the mechanism of causing grievous bodily harm or physical harm. So there's an actual... um, criminal offence of strangulation. So, you know, I think from a um, social, medical and legal perspective, we're really beginning to recognise the seriousness and harms of strangulation. So it's recognised from all these bodies, um, but it's still quite an invisible injury, isn't it, Anusha? 
Uh, yes, and I think that the interesting thing for us as GPs is that, um, you know, patients may actually not recognise strangulation as significant themselves. So something we have to actively ask about. People think that, you know, someone might strangle you and you die or they strangle you and you don't die and therefore you're, you're okay and not perhaps be aware that there are potential injuries that are not visible. Um, and I think also because people feel ashamed or, you know, feel potentially that it's, it's their, their own fault because of that cycle of violence, they may not seek help. So it's something we need to be alert to identifying. So in this podcast, we're going to explore how we can be alert to identifying non-fatal strangulation and hopefully equip listeners with some principles and some approaches around how we can best look after a patient who's been strangled. And we're going to use two case studies. So introducing Paola, our first case study, she's a 35-year-old patient who you've been looking after in general practice for about 18 months. She's been seeing you about recurrent unexplained nausea, diarrhea, abdominal discomfort, and investigations so far have not identified a cause. She recently presented with her husband after a fall down several stairs. She had mild pain in her elbow and tingling in her hand, and she was quite vague about the mechanism of injury. You decided to recommend plain x-rays and conservative management and request that she sees you again in seven days. At the follow-up visit, she's on her own and she tells you that actually her husband had hit her with a table and caused the injuries of, to her elbow at the last visit. So Ellie, we now have a disclosure of domestic violence. Are you already thinking about strangulation or what prompts you to think about that? Can you take us through your thought processes? Well, I think for, for me, if I have a patient who's disclosed domestic violence, I'm going through um, a non-formal risk assessment as a clinician so I've got someone sitting in front of me I need to work out whether they're at immediate risk of harm which um, as a clinician I'm thinking about medical risk of harm often in that capacity and I'm also thinking about how safe they are to go home um, so that kind of immediate risk I'm also thinking about the non-immediate risk like what's what level of risk they're living with so in order to answer all three of those questions about the medical risk, the safe to go home risk and the kind of ongoing contextual risk, I need to ask about strangulation. There's other things I need to ask about as well, but an important thing for that is strangulation. I need to know if they've sustained an injury through strangulation that is likely to be life-threatening at this time. I need to know um, about strangulation as a marker of lethality or risk in their relationship and that will really prompt me to ask those questions about what will happen when you leave here and go home and what's happening at home. So part of my really quite informal risk assessment with a patient who has disclosed DV is to ask about um, strangulation as well as some other things like about weapons and behaviour of the assailant. So I certainly would be asking that upfront even without a disclosure from the patient. Okay, well, let's get a little bit more history. Paula tells you that she has experienced multiple episodes of violence over 12 years. She has presented to the emergency department previously with a black eye and a broken jaw. However, her husband always attends medical appointments with her. In response to direct questioning, she tells you there have been multiple episodes of strangulation and that it even happened once when she was pregnant. Recently, her husband lost his job and started drinking alcohol heavily. The violence has become more frequent. 
The most recent episode was last night when he held her up against a wall by the neck, then pushed her onto the kitchen bench, held two hands around her neck and screamed and shouted at her. Anusha, what's your approach to, to taking more detail in a strangulation history? Sure. So I think the first thing is that at least we've asked about it. So I think the important thing is that we remember to ask. Um, and then I, I think about firstly about assessing the immediate medical priorities. So if someone you know, is obviously actively short of breath or have a compromised airway, then we'll take a different pathway and get them urgently to an emergency department. Um, but in, in someone who's a little bit more stable, um, I'd like to get a bit more detail about what actually happened with that incident. Um, and I think I'd start firstly with a fairly broad question. Um, so um, actually, even when I ask about strangulation, I, I tend to not use the word strangulation. I'll actually say, was any pressure applied to your neck because of the fact that sometimes patients don't recognize what has occurred as being strangulation. Um, so in this case, there's that clear story of two hands around the neck, but sometimes people will talk about having, um, you know, like a, a ligature applied or, um, like a, a hand, a mop handle or a, some sort of solid object held up against the knot causing some compression. Um, so starting with that broad question and then a few more open-ended questions like can you tell me what you remember about what happened? Uh, what concerns do you have about your body? Um, this helps to guide what else we might need to ask about or what the patient's concerns are for that consultation. I'd then go to some more specific closed-ended questions. So can you describe how it happened? How did they apply the pressure to your neck? So if they're not able to describe that, you could ask, was it using one hand, two hands, using the forearm, using an object? Um, ask when did this happen? Where? How long was it for? How did it stop? Um, if they can't remember how it stopped and they just have some memory loss um, and then the next memory is being in a different position, say on the floor or somewhere else, then that indicates that there's likely to have been some loss of consciousness, even if they're not clearly aware of that. Um, now, the other questions I like to ask about the symptoms that they experienced during the assault, that can help me to determine how severe um, the pressure on the neck might have been. So if they had any trouble breathing or speaking, if you're unable to speak, that usually implies that there's significant pressure applied to the larynx um, and a lack of air passing through to, to be able to enable that scheme. So someone says, I, I couldn't scream, I tried to, but like no sound was coming out. And that's important to me. Um, I asked, did you feel like you're going to pass out or did you feel lightheaded? And sometimes people will describe presyncopal symptoms at that time. Um, I'll ask about any changes to their vision. Um, did they experience any pain anywhere? Um, do they have any gaps in their memory? And did they experience any incontinence of bladder or bowel? Um, after the assault, I'd like to know if they had any ongoing symptoms. So, so I'll say after the incident, have you noticed any ongoing pain or discomfort anywhere? It's quite common for people to have a bit of a sore throat. Um, but if, if they do indicate any throat symptoms, I'll just clarify. Have you had any difficulty with, with speaking or swallowing or breathing or any change in your voice? Um, any ongoing changes in vision? Any So I ask about focal neurological changes, any weakness or clumsiness in the limbs, any um, balance difficulties, and um, any bruising or swelling and anything that, that is visible externally that they've noticed. So the, the, the answers to these questions help you with your medical management, as well as, as being important for any forensic um, uh, route that they might, might want to take. Can you comment on that, Anusha? Yes, certainly, um, particularly um, now that we have specific offences relating to choke and, choke and strangle type incidents, um, it can be important to document that it wasn't just a, a mild pressure to the neck, but it was actually sufficient pressure to obstruct the flow of breath 
or the flow of blood to the brain because that can have implications in terms of what charges can be laid. So if they have those symptoms such as increased sympathy or syncope, that implies a lack of blood supply to the brain. If they have trouble speaking, breathing, if they have that feeling they're about to die because they can't get a breath and then that, that pressure is so tight, that, that really does imply that there's been obstruction of airflow. So I think these are really important for us to document, particularly if this is a first disclosure and they haven't already been to the police. Yes. So for Paula, the strangulation history reveals that during the episode she felt she could not breathe and was unable to make a sound to scream for help or to shout. She lost consciousness briefly and woke up lying on the floor. She did not lose control of her bladder or bowels while, unco while unconscious. Her voice has been hoarse since then and she feels her neck is swollen and tender. How, Ellie, how is the, the loss of bowel or bladder control important? Yes, and that's often a question that it's a question we need to explain to our patients, but often also to our um, people who we're referring to why we're interested in that. So we know that, um, that the timeline of strangulation, that loss of consciousness of consciousness can occur quite quickly after about six to seven seconds. Um, which will depend on how consistent the pressure on the neck is. So if there's consistent pressure for around six to seven seconds, we may get loss of consciousness that early. Um, but incontinence whilst unconscious, so loss of bladder or bowel control whilst during that period of unconsciousness, um, is a sign of um, potential serious injury. It's probably a sign of brainstem anoxia. And it shows that the victim is close to permanent injury or death if the strangulation was to continue. So that has importance both in us assessing the medical seriousness of the event, but also the forensic importance. Um, so that if this was to go to a court case, we would then have some um, information about the duration of strangulation and the potential seriousness of that injury. Okay, so... Anusha, we're going to examine her. Can you tell us about your framework that you use in the assessment of a patient who has suffered a non-fatal strangulation? Um, it would be my pleasure to explain my framework. Um, I, I like to keep things really simple, so I just use an A, B, C, D, E framework. So starting with, um, obviously, like any patient in front of us, just checking you know, vital signs and any immediate compromise, particularly to the airway or level of consciousness. And then really a targeted physical examination is probably all we have time for in general practice, let's be honest. Um, so starting with the airway, I assess for laryngeal or neck injury, um, looking for any change in the vocal quality, um, which may be hard if you've never met the patient, but I often ask them, is this how your voice normally sounds? And they'll go, oh no, and actually I sound really husky, this isn't my normal voice. Um, palpating for any subcutaneous emphysema and any neck swelling or, deformi neck swelling or deformity. Um, any tenderness, um, any pain on swallowing. Um, I'll check, um, so B for breathing, obviously looking for any serious respiratory distress, any changes that would require urgent hospital transfer. Um, C is for circulation and carotids. So I look for any signs of arterial injury. So I look for bruises over the carotids, so auscultate for carotid bruise. I look for any signs of increased vascular pressure injuries. Um, so particularly looking at the head and the neck, I'm looking at the eyes, the throat, the mouth, looking for petechiae and subconjunctival hemorrhages. These are signs that there's been um, potentially um, injury to um, the really tiny blood vessels in the head and neck because of congestion um, from increased pressure when the um, pressure has been applied to the neck. Um, I'll look for any bruising, 
um, and, and any tide mark, uh, which is um, a really clearly demarcated area of ruddiness or, or redness of the complexion above the level of the occlusion due to the increased intravascular pressure. D is for disability or deficits or decreased level of consciousness, so all things neurological, um, looking for neurological deficits using really rapid screening neuro exams, so cranial nerves and a really gross upper and lower limb examination. Um, uh, if there is any particular concern about um, level of consciousness or, or cognition, um, you can do a mini mental or the Montreal cognitive assessment, um, or this might be something that you return to at a later appointment if this is a more long-term historical issue that's been um, happening over time rather than an acute strangulation. And particularly noting in your notes any confusion or impaired level of consciousness. And E is for external signs of injury, so examining for any further signs of struggle or injury. So there might be marks on the neck from a ligature or bruises. There may be little abrasions from the offender's hands or from the victim's own fingernails trying to remove the offender's hands. So there's little curved, curvilinear um, scratches on the neck. Um, but I should also emphasise that someone can have a serious um, strangulation and perhaps not see those signs of injury, so we can't just be reassured by that. Thanks, Anusha. That's a, a very sound and a familiar approach using the ABCs. So you just said that if we didn't find anything on our examination, we um, so for instance in Paula's case, it, that means that we don't we can't be any less worried than we were when we originally took the history of the strangulation from her. Is that correct? Um, yes, that's right. The lack of visible injury doesn't exclude possibility of significant injury, and, and in fact, I've seen pictures of postmortem patients where they've died from their strangulation where there is not a, a visible mark on the surface of the neck and there may be bruising or injury deeper down that we can't see or swelling inside the, the airway that, that we can't see or um, injuries to the brain that we can't see. So I think um, we really need to take a solid history and, and consider those signs and symptoms as a whole um, and, and look for those red flags um, rather than just being reassured by a normal external physical examination. Yes, so we are worried about Paola. She has a, a number of red flags from for injury from her strangulation history. Does she need imaging, observation, referral? What do we do now, Ellie? Well, I think that we do need to um, take this seriously. And I think that if this is an option for you, the easiest thing to do or the best thing to do is to refer Paola into the emergency department. So I think as I was saying at the beginning, there's a number of medical guidelines now around management of um, non-fatal strangulation and the Emergency Care Institute together with the ACI have um, published last year um, a non-fatal strangulation guideline. So an emergency department should be able to do a clinical assessment. They should be able to um, decide an action on any imaging needed. They should be able to make referrals to either ENT um, if we're concerned about um, the need for um, nasopharyngeal endoscopy or laryngoscopy. Um, also um, a referral to neurology if we're concerned about um, any neurological deficit. Um, an appropriate CT scanning of the brain, soft tissues or vascular stru structures as needed. So I think that um, rather than us trying to piece together those bits and pieces of what imaging we need, what specialist we need to see, um, a hospital emergency department is best placed for that all-round holistic care. 
The other thing I think we need to think about with strangulation is managing it like a head injury, where we've got very clear guidelines about people needing um, a safe place and observation um, for a time frame after the incident. So um, we may need to, in the case of someone who, where home is not a safe place, to think about whether or not we need to observe, um, admit someone um, either into the emergency department or into a hospital bed for 24 hours for observation. We know um, that at least six hours of observation is advised following a strangulation because we're going to have some late onset edema and swelling, especially around the soft tissues of the neck, which might cause further compression. So we do need to make sure that really in the 24 to 48 hours following an instance, following a strangulation incident, there is someone who is available to observe the patient. And I guess a GP is really well placed to provide some input about that destination post-discharge because we potentially have an ongoing relationship with the patient and know the family situation and who is around but might be a resource um, to help observe and to be able to get that person back to hospital should things deteriorate. Yeah, absolutely. And I hate to be really prescriptive about how this bit is managed because um, both the GP and the patient themselves are going to be the experts on how that's best managed. But I think really encouraging us to use the emergency department as a resource, um, depending on what the circumstances are, is probably going to be our best bet. And I guess also giving that information to the patient, that safety netting advice, you know, should you, if, you know similar to when we see someone after a TIA, we talk to, talk to them about what the focal neurological things might be that may occur if they did have an injury. And in, in this case, we're thinking, you know, could there be a carotid dissection causing a delayed um, you know, stroke or neurovascular event, um, as well as the, the soft tissue swelling that you, you mentioned, Ellie? Yes. So I, th I think it's, um, you know, a lot of it is about um, giving the patient some information and their caregivers some information about what to look out for, I guess. Yeah, so that the patient is one of the, the experts in their own care. Um, but we talked earlier about how strangulation is an injury that's sometimes minimised. So we might be more concerned than, than Paola is about strangulation in this case. How would you approach that, that risk with Paola, Ellie? Well, I think, you know, as Anusha said, it, um, strangulation is an injury that's often um, invisible, it's often minimised by patients, but we do have that kind of knowledge that strangulation is a risk factor. So I think reflecting some of that information back to our patient, back to Paola, saying I'm concerned because I know that strangulation can be a medical emergency, um, as well as obviously a risk for ongoing and delayed injury. But also, I know that strangulation is a mark of um, seriousness within a domestic violence situation. So being able to say to the patient, you know, you've told me that there's some violence in your relationship. The fact that that's involving strangulation makes me really concerned because we know that people who experience strangulation within a relationship are at higher risk of death from any cause, not just strangulation. So, you know, really ex explain to patients how seriously we would take that. Um, so, and that would probably lead us into either us conducting a um, more structured safety assessment or engaging with um, either hospital social work or community DV services to do a formal safety assessment. So 
In New South Wales, we tend to use the DVSAT or the DV Safety Assessment Tool, and that's a tool that gives us a score, a way of um, looking at whether a DV situation is um, at particularly high risk. Um, and the questions in those DV um, safety assessments that are about non-fatal strangulation. So we already know, um, without even formally doing that, that we're going to score highly on a formal assessment um, tool. But that might be that that key around strangulation might be um, our way in with the patient of saying, you know, this makes me think this that the strength the DV you're experiencing is extremely serious. I would like to do a safety assessment. I would like to refer you to a service to do a safety assessment. So it's almost a way of us kind of formalizing some of that risk. Um, the other thing we do need to consider as healthcare providers is that anyone who's had repeated strangulation or repeated head injury from any cause um, is at increased risk of um, traumatic brain injury. Um, and um, some mild traumatic brain injury can be quite hard to diagnose, especially for patients who are living with um, psychological trauma and stress. So um, thinking about, again, reflecting back to the patient that we're concerned about their immediate safety, their safety from violence, but also thinking about an assessment for whether they've got any um, memory deficits, any um, emotional ability, any... Um, kind of psychological impacts which may be related to traumatic brain injury as well as the trauma of strangulation. So there's a lot going on <laughs> and I think often what we actually need to do with our patient is just slow it down a bit, explain to them that we're concerned about risk and then step out a few of the things that we'd like to walk through with them. In a very carried way, I'm sure we, we all do. Yes, and I think, again, that's kind of harking back to, you know, what Anusha was just saying about this. The GP is, is generally the best placed person to do that. So we, we've got a huge amount of um, concerns and risks. We've probably just reflected back to Paula, um, and we don't want to overwhelm her with that. She's got enough going on. So it's sitting down, collaborating with the patient, putting the patient back at the centre of their care, just thinking about what a structured way of um, stepping through some of the concerns that we have are. Thank you. Well, let's move on to a slightly different case. Case two is an 18-year-old. Her name is Michaela. She was strangled by an acquaintance four days ago and is coming to see you because she was advised by the emergency department to follow up with her GP if she continued to experience any symptoms. So here she is in front of you. Um, and we've got, a, we've got to come up with a management plan at the request of the ED. So she, she has noticed that some bruising has appeared on her neck. She presented to the emergency department after a sexual assault at a party. There was initial concern, sorry, initial consensual kissing, oral sex, then sexual assault and strangulation. There was pressure applied with one hand around her throat as well as pressure to her neck and to her chest. She was managed in the emergency department acutely. She saw the sexual assault team and had a forensic examination. Ellie, what further details would you like from Michaela? Well, we want to actually, we, we've got a history that she has been 
strangled <laughs> but we probably and we've got some information about that there was pressure with one hand but we probably do want to take the form that more kind of detailed formal history of strangulation that Anusha stepped us through so we do want to know a little bit more about the mechanics of the strangulation but also about um, whether there was any loss of consciousness any incontinence what Michaela experienced um, during the strangulation Okay, so she tells you that there was sort of intermittent on-off on single-handed pressure to her throat. There was no loss of consciousness, no incontinence, and there were no memory gaps. Hmm. So that gives us a lot kind of more information probably about the duration of the strangulation and about um, you know, potential injury to the neck and to the, to the soft tissues. Um, I'm also quite interested in what management she had in ED. So um, we know that sexual assault is often a very distracting injury. So when someone presents to the emergency department following a sexual assault, sometimes they just get siphoned straight off into the sexual assault service. And other injuries such as non-fatal strangulation are um, not necessarily addressed medically because we're focusing on that um, management of the sexual assault both medically forensically and psychosocially so i'd want to know you know was the emergency department doctor aware that she'd actually been strangled um she may have disclosed that to the sexual assault service but that might not have led to her going back to emergency to have some uh, a comprehensive medical assessment we don't know if she's had any imaging we don't know if she needed any imaging um but I'd want to know about um, if she's able to tell us what happened in emergency um, about the strangulation. Well, she tells you that she saw a few doctors while in the emergency department. She says that they checked the nerves in her face and someone looked down her throat with a camera. The emergency department said that she was safe to go home, but she should present to her general practice, practitioner if she had any ongoing symptoms. So I think we're reassured by the care that she received. She was able to, to tell the emergency doctors about the strangulation and that was, that was not invisible to them and they were able to, to manage her appropriately. So what's our approach now, Anusha, four days later? Okay, so look, as you say, uh, Jane, I think um, it, it does sound reassuring that she's had a thorough assessment in ED and, and, and people have looked for injury. Um, and so we're obviously seeing her in that follow-up context, saying, "Well, what's happened now um, in, in the in the in the time since she presented?" So, at this point, we'd like to know about any further symptoms that have developed, anything else that she's noticed. Um, certainly, if she's um, presented concerned about the bruising on her neck, then we'd like to document those bruises. That might be important, not not just medically but also forensically later down the track. We want to document any swelling. Um, I'd note any relevant negatives if she hasn't notice certain things so if she is able to swallow well if, if she um, hasn't had any change in voice that kind of thing would, would be useful or if she had some of that and it's resolved now that's still useful to document that these are the little details that she may forget later but might have forensic relevance if there's persistent painful swallowing um, difficulty swallowing um, or hoarse voice that hasn't resolved um, I'd consider getting an, an ENT consult or at least just phoning phoning for advice um, but otherwise I think reassuring and monitoring um, if she's able to eat and drink um, without difficulty and, and, the, and any, any sore throat is, is on, on the mend, um, then I think that's very reassuring. 
I think an important other step at this point, four days after the strangulation, is to check on her well-being and her mental health and to provide a supportive and validating response to that that experience, which was obviously a traumatic one, um, not to mention the, the sexual assault that she also had um, been to emergency to um, ass- have assessed, uh, and to provide her a safe space to be able to return if there are any ongoing sequelae. So on sequelae, how long does she remain at risk of of consequences, physical consequences of strangulation? Once she feels back to normal, could she still suffer a, a stroke down the track? Um, and we've touched on it, but is she at risk of acquired brain injury after one hypoxic event to her brain? Ellie, could you help yeah, us out? Look, good questions to which we really don't have it. We don't have enough evidence really to answer either of those. So first of all, if we address um, stroke. So stroke in the context of non-fatal strangulation is caused by carotid artery dissection. Um, we know that the carotid artery dissection is caused by significant trauma to the neck. Um, and we know that the risk of um, that carotid artery dissection is probably highest in the the days to weeks following um, trauma to the neck, following a strangulation episode. Um, There have been case reports of um, carotid artery dissections up to five months following strangulation, but that's probably um, unlikely. So we absolutely need to um, remind our patients or warn our patients that if they develop any neurological symptoms, um, any neurological deficits um, in, you know, for months after a strangulation episode, they need to seek care urgently. But per patient, for each individual patient, that risk is probably low and it's probably highest in the in the week or so following strangulation. We probably think that the more um, trauma there is to the neck, especially kind of shearing trauma and um, a lot of uh, movement and uh, kind of on-off strangulation is probably going to be a predictor that there's more likely to be damage to the carotid artery, but that's really um, based on, um, you know, biological probabilities rather than good evidence that we have. Um, That was um, a stroke stroke, um, that was recorded five months after. Yes, um, a stroke which was thought to be from carotid artery dissection. Yeah, that was in the Lancet. Yes, so... um, Hopefully not too common that it's that long after. No, no. I mean, really, we're we're thinking about the immediate aftermath. Um, But I think we'd also be very reluctant to say, um, once you're back to normal, you're back to normal. Um, so the, the ABI question, the acquired brain injury question is also a really hard one to answer. We know that um, people are at risk of um, ongoing symptoms from um, repeated episodes of anoxia or repeated episodes of head injury. And we don't, we think probably one episode of strangulation is unlikely to cause significant um, damage, but that really depends on what that episode looks like and I think that um, we don't know what else has happened in people's histories so I think we do need to be more aware that um, repeated brain injury and repeated strangulation can occur in contexts other than sport um, and we probably need to just be thinking a little bit more about that in our in our history. 
so re repeated events will increase the risk of, of acquired brain injury. That brings me to another difficult question. Um, strangulation is, is often seen as a normal part of sex these days, isn't it? It's, it's normalised in pornography. Younger and younger people have access to pornography where they're seeing strangulation and, and where it's being normalised. So we, we could have repeated uh, recreational strangulation events. Yeah, I think that strangulation is um, definitely um, often seen as part of pornography or part of um, sex as kind of we have this um, narrative around autoerotic asphyxiation and strangulation um, increasing uh, sexual pleasure. So when we talk about strangulation in the context of sex, we're thinking about strangulation or pressure on the neck. We're also thinking about choking or compromising the airways to kind of again give that same anoxic um, experience. Um, I think that um, there's a couple of things we need to think about. I think as um, healthcare providers and in a public health context, we need to reflect our concerns. So we know that depriving your brain of oxygen is risky in any context. So both strangulation and choking are risky um, in sex, in choking games, in wrestling, in um, breath holding, you know, we talk about, you know, breath holding in the pool. We need to address that um, anoxic injury in a public health context. And I think we can very clearly say that it is something that is of high risk in a sexual context. I also think we can use it to explore, if appropriate, how consensual um, that is in a sexual relationship. Do people really, um, are people really agreeing to choking and strangulation as part of that sexual relationship or is it something they're being coerced or pressured into? So we need to think about consent in any sexual relationship and exploring that on a regular basis is really important. If people are um, using high risk practices in sex, whether that's strangulation, choking or other forms of um, S&M or physical um, acts within a sexual relationship, then they need to think about um, safe words and communication um, to make that sex play as safe as possible. But I do think in answer to your question, we are absolutely placed to, to um, bust that myth. Strangulation is, is not a necessarily a normal part of sex. So I think that we can very clearly say that we think there are important health risks associated with it. Thanks, Ellie. That's a really important message. Well, let's come to um, our most important messages so we can we can finish with a bang and um, and take home some some important facts from today. Anusha, what would be your take home message? Sure. Look, I think we've we've covered some of the physical aspects of non-fatal strangulation in terms of the serious issues and red flags that we think need further investigation. But I think equally important in our general practice setting is to talk about uh, the risk from strangulation in terms of the increased risk of homicide. In a, if you're strangled by your intimate partner, you're seven times more likely to be killed by that partner. And I think that's something that we as GPs can have an honest conversation with our patients about it and, and share some of our understanding of that risk. And, and that might be our opportunity to prevent a, a future homicide. Thank you. And, and for me, um, as, a, as a GP, I think that I know now I have an approach to, to taking a history and an examination for a patient who 
disclosures and discloses a non-fatal strangulation. Um, I acknowledge that asking difficult questions can be difficult, but I think we are in the best position to to create a safe place to ask that question question mm. and and manage the answer appropriately. And at the end of the day, that the patient who's not feeling safe want you to ask. Um, another uh, another quick take home is that we've there's a, a, a very useful document released by the Agency for Clinical Innovation in conjunction with the Emergency Care Institute, the Clinical Practice Guide Managing Non-Fatal Strangulation in the Emergency Department. And that guide clearly lists the, the red flags for strangulation from the history and examination and will guide you as to appropriate management, including the, the useful imaging and necessary imaging in the acute setting. Well, thank you so much, Anusha. Thank you, Ellie. Thank we you. Hope that we've provided some, some important messages today.